Hello everyone, I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. In this series, uh, we have an opportunity to uh, hear the sort of the challenges and opportunities that are facing the healthcare uh, industry, You're particularly from business leaders who are at the, uh, the, at the cutting edge, of, at, at the, at the coalface. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting to hear what they've got to say, particularly when, you know, events are sort of moving very, very quickly all the time. So in, in, in line with this, I'm, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Caroline Lowe, who is the uh, president and CEO of um, a, uh, a company called uh, Glimpse Bio. It's a, a private biotech based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which uh, originally sort of spun out in 2015 from MIT. And, you know, the company is focusing on the better understanding of uh, disease to transform both the sort of the, uh, the detection and predict uh, sort of treatment uh, responses using bioengineered sensors that have been designed for each protease uh, mediated disease. Earlier this year, the company uh, closed an oversubscribed um, uh, Series B financing at $46.7 million. Um, and that is going to be used to uh, support the development of the company's biosensor platform um, in fibrotic diseases such as uh, NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Uh, um, you can see whatever it calls it, NASH. Um, as well as you know, explore uh, the potential for use in oncology uh, and infectious diseases. So, uh, Caroline, um, I hope you and those you care about are, uh, are keeping safe and well, and, and thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you. Real pleasure to be here today. Thank you for the invitation, Mike. Really appreciate it. <clears throat> so, uh, to, to kick off the, uh, the conversation, uh, I thought actually it'd be really great if you could sort of just you know, explain the platform that actually underpins Glimpse Bio, you know, how it's designed to provide, you know, that better predictability of, of, of treatment responses. Right. Great question. So, um, so as you said, we have a, um, we have a diagnostic that is designed to both better detect disease as well as determine response to, to treatment. And we see very broad use for that, right? It's, if you think about, um, you know, you've probably, you may have experienced this personally or with, you know, a family member, just this whole issue of how to diagnose disease and how to find out whether you have the right treatment and the treatment is working is just really an underserved uh, need today. And so uh, our technology is protease mediated. So there are over 570 proteases in the, in the body and they're, they're involved uh, across uh, all aspects of human health and disease. And uh, we've developed a technology, it's platform-based, that uh, identifies which proteases are involved in a specific disease state. And then we have uh, uh, sensors that we, um, that we send into the body that are tuned to the specific disease state they can detect the disease state, the disease activity specifically. So they're sending out real-time uh, signals on uh, the disease status. Um, we then collect a urine sample an hour after the administration of the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the sensors. And we're able to tell, uh, first of all, what the situation is with the disease, you know, the status of the disease, the progression of the disease. And then also we're able to determine whether 
what the, uh, the response to uh, treatment is. As you mentioned, our first indication is in NASH. Um, and we focus on NASH because it was a, a disease that um, has a significant unmet need. Um, there are a lot of therapeutics under development. There isn't any treatment today, but there's also no good way to detect the disease either. So we sort of have this dual, we have this dual problem. Um, today, the, the, the main way to detect disease is actually with a liver biopsy, which is incredibly painful. And there's not something that can be repeated. And so to have a simple kind of non-invasive uh, test that can both detect the disease, detect the disease early, and then track the treatment response is something that we, we believe will be particularly valuable. And, and so, so NASH is the, uh, the, the first sort of indication. Is it because you know, the liver biopsy is so intrusive and you know, unpleasant that you, you decided that that would be a, a sort of almost like a good poster child for, for, for the for the platform? Absolutely, a couple of different reasons. So that's one good reason, right? Um, you know, high unmet need, uh, you know, real need for a diagnostic. The diagnostic, the, the current diagnostic, the liver biopsy uh, is actually not particularly accurate either. So there's also need for a good diagnostic. It's also something that not, it can't be used serially. Um, and so you're not able to track the disease over time. So that's the second reason. The third reason is that uh, NASH itself is, uh, is a highly protease-mediated disease. And so as a target for our technology, it also made good sense scientifically. And generally, from a portfolio perspective, um, these are the kinds of things that you, you would look for. You would look for um, you know, high need in terms of you know, high medical need in, uh, in terms of patient care, but also good overlap for your portfolio as well. And, in terms of protease-mediated diseases, while there are many, uh, that's one where there's, uh, there's significant uh, need. Um, another you know, potential uh, interesting area is oncology. The fundamental pathway of um, tumor killing in oncology is actually protease-mediated. So it's another good example where we can potentially deploy our technology. And so we sort of, we follow the science um, and you know, pr protease mediation, as I said, is quite ubiquitous in disease. And so it's sort of a question of, Where's that overlap, right? Where's that need to really diagnose disease, as well as you know, good overlap with the with the protease mediation. Right. So, yeah, one of the things is that um, yeah, last last year it was about this time, um, sort of yeah, in the fall uh, of 2019, you entered into a strategic collaboration uh, with Gilead, mm -hmm. Gilead Sciences, in in this sort of in this Nash space. Mm. So, so you know, listening to uh, you know what you said, could you sort of explain, you know, I guess first how that deal sort of you know, came about, you know, how how was it that you know Gilead was 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 the partner, and mm. also how it fits in with that you know that deal fit in with your business model. So you know what you what you're doing and how you're going to benefit and what Gilead's doing and and how they yeah. benefit. Yeah. So we actually had, um, we have been working with EIR for quite some time predating that deal. We had an undisclosed uh, partnership with them prior to that, uh, which was in the preclinical space. And so they had actually been tracking our technology for, for, for quite some time. And um, this is sort of generally how we see the evolution of our technology with pharma companies. So my background is actually in drug development. I'm not a diagnostic developer, but sort of how I came to Glimpse was really trying to solve a problem that I had seen on the therapeutic side, which is we develop all these great therapeutics, but one of the big barriers to therapeutic development is being able to 
both identify the right patient and also to track therapeutic response. Um, you know, one of the, so if you, particularly looking at early pipelines, it's a really, really big issue. Generally, we're saying, you know, fantastic science, but essentially our ability to decode that biology is being uh, sort of held up by the absence of really good diagnostics. And there's been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of research applied at that over the, particularly the past five to seven years, but you know, it, it maybe hasn't advanced as much as it, as it could. And I was very frustrated with it uh, in the role that I had in my, uh, my last company, Bristol Myers Squibb. And so the idea to come to a company like Glimpse to maybe really advance that frontier, to find diagnostic tools that could have broad applicability in the end for patients, but before that in the, in the drug development arena was really quite compelling for me. So back then into the Gilead uh, question, Gilead is, uh, is a leader in, in NASH therapeutics. Um, they had been at the forefront of that, uh, of that for many years. And so they were a natural partner for, for us. Um, we have been in conversation with them, um, predating, certainly predating my time as CEO, I think since about 2015. Um, we had had a preclinical collaboration with them. That, the results of that were actually published at a major liver meeting last year. Um, and so they had sort of been tracking our technology. We then had a collaboration that was preclinical. And then that led, the results of that were so compelling to them, they then moved into a clinical collaboration. So it was an iteration. And those kinds of iterations are very common in sort of the biotech ecosystem, right? Companies, large pharma companies will, or biotech companies will build collaborations with small companies. They'll sort of, they'll watch the evolution of the, the technology. And then as the technology matures, they will enter into large clinical collaborations. So this was very natural. Um, and for us, we wanted to be with a leader in NASH. We wanted a leader who had a broad portfolio in NASH so that we could really look um, at the, the true application of our technology. And also it enables us to learn, right? We, we're a small company, we don't know everything. And there's a lot of advantage for us to work with a large, um, you know, a large therapeutic leader. So sort of the duality of the technology is really the following. We are looking to do two things with our technology. The first is just to be able to identify patients right, who have disease. And the second is then to, to understand therapeutic response. We can identify patients who have disease potentially by ourselves. We can't, under, we can't undertake therapeutic response without collaborations with pharma companies, right? So a collaboration with a company like Gilead is perfect for us. But the other piece is that pharma companies have a problem to solve. <laughs> they can't medicalize the market. They can't introduce therapeutics meaningfully into the market without a non-invasive diagnostic that helps them identify treatable patients and determine whether they're responding to treatment. It's the classic way the osteoporosis market opened up, for example. It was with the presence of the DEXA scan. And this is this this is sort of the advantage of the collaboration and so we have other collaborations and discussion it, you know companies are really really interested in a technology like ours because it's going to enable their therapeutic to meaningfully come to patients without that without being able to identify the patient and determine the treatment response there's there's no market so there's a real symbiosis and i've learned from you know all my 20 plus years in pharma that Collaborations are born out of symbiosis, right? Scientific symbiosis, but also in the end that both companies create some, some value together. In this case, we're sort of the opportunity uh, in the marketplace. So uh, 
so the so the deal um i mean it sounds like you know the platform mm -hmm. uh you know it can be useful you know in nash is it is it a, you know is the way that you're sort of structuring the deals that you know a partner would have your know, exclusive use of the technology <clears throat> of the platform in you know a particular indication generally not i mean if a you know those are business terms in the end but um I mean, if a company came to us and, and was interested in that, of course, those are business terms that we we discuss in any uh, in any collaboration. But in in a situation like Nash, I think the way that many companies are approaching discussions like us is sort of like the, the notion of a rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> the absence of, of of diagnosis and treatment response in the marketplace is a is going to be a real barrier to medicalization. Period. It's not. It's not a. It's not a problem for just Pfizer or just Bristol Myers Squibb or just Gilead or just Novartis. It's a problem for everyone. And so, unless everyone contributes to solving that problem, the market isn't going to open up. And, and today, just in the U.S. alone, there are. It's estimated between 16 and 20 million uh, patients with NASH who are undiagnosed. Globally, that's estimated to be 100 million. You know, there's are patients who are progressing predominantly slowly along the cirrhotic spectrum. So sometime in, you know, sort of across the NASH spectrum towards cirrhosis. So that's like a 10 to 20 year journey. There's a subset who are progressing extremely quickly. And when those patients generally get diagnosed, they're cirrhotic, right? They, they need a liver transplant. That's a terrible, terrible diagnosis to have. And some of those patients yeah. can't be, um, you know, are, are untreatable, unfortunately. And, and it's just, it's a, it's a terrible insidious disease. You know, it's, a slow, it's just called the silent killer. Um, so, so figuring this out, I think, is a, is, a real, is a problem that the scientific community is trying to own collectively. You see the hepatologist trying to own it with the... Um, you know, it, uh, you know, with the with the pharma companies, there's a lot of momentum around it, um, and and the the diagnostic is one pillar of that. The diagnostics is therapeutic. There's there's also the notion of building disease knowledge as well. So the you mentioned uh, I, I mentioned in the introduction, and you 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 followed it up that you know, so Nash is is the first area, but in fact you're you're looking mm -hmm. at sort of opportunities in other therapeutic areas. Um, how how are you going to decide, or how how are you deciding which ones you're going to target first? Yeah, it's the uh, it's sort of the perennial uh, it, it's the perennial portfolio question <laughs> that every company faces, right? Yeah. And I can tell you, so my my discipline, right, my my background in particular has come from managing large portfolios in in pharma companies, and so I. I've spent a lot of time addressing these questions and thinking about these questions. And it's, it's never binary, right? It's never sort of, you know, sort of a, a simple set of like, yes, no kind of answers. So you're looking at a, you're looking at a, a complex set of factors that you're trying to weigh together, but fundamentally you're always driven by the science, right? You're always driven by where your, your science or your technology really has the ability to, to differentiate. And how we think about it for us is sort of like what we call proximal uh, diseases. And so in the fibrotic space or the or sort of the protease mediated fibrotic diseases, and, and there's sort of a cluster then of related um, of protease activity. Um, if you think about NASH as a core, there are a cluster of diseases that 
have proximity and, and pharma companies sort of follow this in their portfolios as well. So you sort of have mesh, you have oncology, you have immunology, you have infectious disease. And if I tell you that that's kind of a cluster, there, there's all there's protease mediation in all those diseases. And if you, if you, if you went back after you know, our, our conversation and you said, well, that's interesting. If I looked at the pharma companies and I said, uh, uh, are most pharma companies who are in NASH also in those diseases, you would find out the answer is yes. So we're probably in three of those four diseases. And the reason is that the fundamental biology is very similar. So there's sort of, there's, there's, there's a lot of like proximal nature to the biology. So we, we're following that premise too. We, we're focusing on oncology. We're also looking at infectious disease. We have very, very strong data in infectious disease. Um, and so we, we sort of see the same basis for us. Um, I, I think what's interesting for us is because, you know, we know that proteases are so broadly involved in human health and disease. We, we see at some point kind of the potential to have, you know, broad screening ability and to be able to look, you know, very broadly at you know, protease enablement or protease engagement in, in many diseases and potentially diseases where there's no good diagnostic today. But we're, we're, uh, I say we're cautious, we're, we, we maintain focus and I think we are always the risk any company, but particularly for a small company is, um, I call it spreading the peanut butter, right? <laughs> you spread the peanut butter too thin. <laughs> you know, you, you end up, you, you, you get, you get a, a tiny little bit done of a lot of things and you don't achieve anything. So we're, we're very focused. Um, we, you know, we started our oncology program, um, you know, shortly after our, we had very good data and, and we're clearly going to a clinic with our NASH program. Um, we've started infectious disease post our series B. So we've been very measured in making sure that we, we have the ability to really, um, you know, first of all, fund how we move forward, but also, you know, gather good data and, and progress the program in a meaningful way. So it, 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 it's a, you know, it, it's a, 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 a very thoughtful process, I would say, but it's driven fundamentally by the science. And, and, and in the end, the, the need to, to, to build a diagnostic in, in the space. And I would say infectious disease, just as an example, you only need to look outside right now to know that, you know, diagnostics in infectious disease are an important opportunity. Yeah, sure. Um, so looking at, in sort of the background when I was doing my homework uh, for, for, for this interview, I sort of, I noticed that your technology, it combines synthetic biomarkers with machine learning uh, to sort of yeah, help identify mm -hmm. and monitor the progress um, of, of, of these diseases. <clears throat> what, what have been the challenges, um, you know, sort of invalidating the approach and I mean, there's always a bit of sort of skepticism around you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So, yeah. you know, how how have you sort of you know dealt with with that kind of skepticism as well? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a really important um, distinction here, and and I would be the 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 first to draw it. <clears throat> this universe of kind of like machine learning and artificial intelligence is an enormous spectrum, and uh, those terms are used, I, I think, uh, with abandon. <laughs> um, we do we do create a we have a machine learning classifier that we apply to our data, and you know we 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 teach it, and you know then analyzes our data prospectively, so it makes a prediction on our data. It's very rudimentary. I mean, in in the context of machine learning, 
um, it's absolutely validated. It's absolutely predictive. Um, and we've caught, you know, we build it and we validate it and so forth. But in the context of machine learning and and artificial intelligence is very rudimentary. We don't have enough data to make it more sophisticated than that. We will when we go into large patient cohorts and eventually when we go into the, you know, the total patient population, we'll be able to make it more sophisticated. And that's our expectation. But today it's not. It's it's pretty rudimentary. Um, and, and it's a kind of thing that's used pretty broadly. Um, you know, for us, we have been, and one of the reasons that we we didn't talk broadly about our technology sort of post our series B, post our series A until our series B was because we wanted to make sure that we had built a very broad cohort of um, preclinical data and had human clinical validation of our technology. So essentially at that interface that you're talking about, sort of biology, machine learning and bioengineering that we had demonstrated clearly and we had demonstrated across multiple animal models and into humans <laughs> that this technology really worked and we have that and in, in fact we, we're publishing our um our human data uh, at the, the upcoming liver meeting uh, in, a, in a couple of weeks but we, we had that sort of complete package by the time we we went to our funding at our last round and that essentially was the validation, right? It's, so we took all the risk off the table, which was to say, we, we've now traveled through multiple different animal models. We've used this combination. We've gone to humans. And so what's left now is just simply efficacy risk, right? And so does it really work? Um, and that's, that's a classic therapeutic risk, right? That's, I mean, that's part of, that's part of development. That's part of drug development. So um, yes, there's, of course there's skepticism but we're not doing anything that's wildly complicated um and we went through extensive validation and and i think that's sort of the key um you know again i, I came from a drug development background <laughs> i'd seen more failures than i than i than i cared to talk about and 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 those you know the, those are those are valuable learning lessons right you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes we had some wonderful successes but i don't really count those it's the things that you learn from the things that don't work that really teach you and 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 i brought those lessons to to, to this um and 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 it's that, that that led us to build i think a very robust data set with with multiple sets of validation across multiple different models and then finally the human model and then we were able to say okay <laughs> we have confidence that this works so actually you you know, you, you talked about your background. You, I mean, you joined the company as president and CEO in November 2018. Yeah, having spent the previous 11 years at senior roles, you know, most recently Bristol Myers Squibb, but before that at MSD. Um, what was what was the biggest challenge from going from that sort of that big farmer environment yeah. into, you know, what at that time was I guess a three year old you know sort of spin out. Yeah, yeah. I, I had really thought a lot about this. My, I, you know, I had, um, I think it's actually maybe a lot of women are, um, and I, I had been really deliberate in my career trajectory. I had, I'd always wanted to run a biotech, and I had sort of had this very deliberate career plan where I felt that there were a set of experiences that I needed to build, and I had kind of moved from role to role kind of gathering those experiences 
and my role at Bristol Myers Squibb, where I was I sort of had the number two position in the R&D organization, sort of running the whole of the R&D strategy and operations and portfolio. And, and I felt to me it was kind of like the capstone, which was like, the, I'm going to see the totality of an R&D operating organization. And when I've done that, I feel like I can go and sort of run a, a, a biotech. And so it was sort of, that was the last step for me before I left. And I spent about a year before I left. Um, you know, I was planning to leave and I spent about a year before I left. I had a, a very fortunate, I had a board network. I talked to lots of other CEOs. I, I, I looked at sort of the spectrum of different types of companies, companies that were public, companies that were still private, companies that were very early stage, like the company I went to, um, companies that were at later stage, trying to figure out like, what was right for me. And, you know, in the end, I'm a, at my heart, I'm a, I'm a builder. Um, I like white sheets of paper. Um, and I decided that a very early stage company, so when I joined Glimpse, I think we had four employees. Um, we had essentially shown that the scientific concept of the technology worked um, and that there was, the, there was a sort of a business model there. I just raised the Series A round and I took over then. And so the whole premise for me was then building the company, <laughs> which was what I really wanted to do. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you think about it, if, 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 if people are contemplating this kind of move, it's really about understanding, first of all, what your strengths are and what you want to do. Um, and then secondly, finding the company that kind of meets those. Um, so for me, it was very, con you know, it was, it was very deliberate. It wasn't, a, you know, a, a kind of a it was sort of knee jerk, but there was, you know, it, it, it was a, a process that took a long time with a lot of consideration and and the technology played a lot into that it, it 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 was solving a problem that i had been very frustrated with when um and grappled with a lot in my particularly in my last role at, at bms right, so so that's kind of interesting because you know so i was sort of thinking oh, so what advice would you give you know, other farmer execs who you know think of making a sort of you know, a similar career move but it seems like the yeah there was this huge amount of due diligence um, and it was almost, almost like an entrepreneur. You, you, you spot that there's a, a problem in the marketplace and then you yeah. try and find a solution for it. Are there, are there other things that make, for example, are there, were there sort of key skill sets that you, know, you acquired, maybe unintentionally acquired, that actually have been very, very useful, you know, as you've sort of transitioned and, and, you know, started to build this, this, um, this biotech. You know, it was interesting. I had a I had a conversation um, with a with a colleague um, about a year ago, actually. And and one of the things that I observed, it, it, there's sort of there's a huge outflow right from big pharma into uh, um, into biotech, and um, and I think a general assumption that people can make the transition, which I actually don't think is true. Um, and 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 so I, I think sort of what's behind your question is that people do have to understand that in many cases it's different um that it is uh it, it is much less structured uh that you have to be you're, you're going because it's by nature you know it, it's a it's a riskier endeavor that you 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 really need to you have to want that agility right the the, the adaptability the, the the you know the the lack of um, structure and the fluidity. Um, I, I thrive on that. I, th I thrive on change. I mean, I don't change for change's sake, but I, I like the fact that um, 
we can make decisions and then we can act on them right away, right? There's not an enormous bureaucracy. And, and, and certainly some of my peers from BMS in particular who've moved have also thrived on that, right? They, you know, BMS was actually a pretty agile organization as well, but it, it's still markedly different. And so the idea that you can, you can have that, you know, in a less structured environment that you can really drive the opportunity and the scientific opportunity when you see it is really great. But for some people that's not right. And, and, and I think that, that that's actually very important. So you have to be true to yourself, right? And, and that's the key. Like, so same with any job, <laughs> you know, understanding, you know, what's important for you and, and what, what makes you tick um, is really critical. I mean, I think there's an allure, there's no question. Everyone wants to be there, um, but you should be honest, right? And it, and it might not be the place for you, um, and, which is fine. Uh, it, the, we need the ecosystem and, and we need equally talented, you know, scientists um, and, and physicians, uh, you know, in, in large pharma as well and, and, and large biotech. So there's room for everyone. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess, again, as a sort of a, as a as a leader within a pharmaceutical company, there are always going to be times when you are you're having to put, push for more resource uh, to sort of, you know, move a program forward, etc. But, you know, you mentioned that you joined after the Series A and, you know, the company has just done a sort of Series B financing. And I just wonder whether, you know, was the sort of the questioning that you were getting from, you know, investors and potential investors much different from what you might have been receiving internally within sort of the pharmaceutical companies? And, you know, and what are the hardest questions normally you have to answer? Um, yeah, I would say the, uh, the rigor of training that I had um, coming from a, a large company actually helped tremendously. I mean, it, it just, it, it, it conditions you in a way that I think is pretty unique, particularly the kind of the type of role that, that I had, you know, to really understand your financials, to really understand your data, to really present it in a very pithy focused way. So I, I think all of that was a big plus. It meant that we went into our series B with, um, I, I certainly felt very confident, like a, a, a very comprehensive set of data, B, a very well-structured set of data. And I felt that we were pretty well positioned to answer any questions. I mean, a couple of interesting things I, I think happened to us. Um, you know, we, we were looking for a particular type of investor um, in, in our series, but we wanted people who were really going to be able to contribute to the growth of the business. And um, I'm sort of always of the mind that, you want people who are going to challenge you. And so we actually liked it when we found investors who really, you know, who really pushed us um, and maybe asked questions that we hadn't thought of or, you know, looked at the data a little bit differently and caused us to go back and reanalyze it. We didn't find anything that was particularly, I, I don't recall anything that we didn't know, but we certainly on a couple of occasions had to go back and reanalyze data for investors. And for me, that's really interesting, right? When they look at something, just you know in a in a different tangentially to the way that you have i i find that very interesting and we we certainly found it very interesting one of those investors ended up leading our round uh so i i think that tells you how much we welcomed that instead of shying away from it we actually embraced it and we have very good dialogue with them so overall it was a very you know it was a very positive thing but for us the more the more sort of interesting experience i mean interesting <laughs> interesting experience was that um we we had our we signed our term sheet sort of right after the um, 
right after the pandemic, I mean, literally like days after lockdown. And um, so we had assembled kind of a group of investors who we knew were going to follow our lead investor. Um, and I don't know if you remember these, it's hard now actually to, to remember that this happened, but um, you know, in the US and I, I believe everywhere, um, the stock markets crashed and then there was a massive crash. And so we signed our term sheet actually the day the stock market bottomed. <laughs> so it was the lowest day. And um, we had investors who were planning to come into our round who had massive capital markets exposure. And also then other investors who were just, their companies were, you know, kind of, you know, in panic and, you know, who knew what was going to happen. You know, they were worried about protecting um, their existing portfolios. It was this period of probably like two months of just complete, um, I don't say mania, but it was very, it was very panicked environment on the investor side. And so we had a number of investors who backed out with good reason, right? They were either, their capital markets exposure was massive. They lost a lot of money in the near term. They were, they had huge issues with their portfolio companies and they decided to reallocate to their portfolio companies. And so for us, then rebuilding very quickly a syndicate. So you saw we end up oversubscribed. It worked out fine for us. But rebuilding a syndicate in a really short time in that environment where everyone was very essentially, I mean, scared is maybe not too, uh, is, is the wrong word, but they, everyone was very nervous and no one knew what was going to happen. And our, our, our whole investment pitch had to change. And that was, I think, for us was interesting. It went from being the promise of the technology and blah, 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 to if, if, this environment persists like where we are right now this dire financial situation and you have to dramatically change your plans to make your investment last from like x years to y years or you know something happened you know it, it was every apocalyptic downside scenario you can imagine that was all they were interested in and so you know for us like getting in their mindset and saying okay we're going to actually practically go out and address all of these questions was very interesting and so for me, that was the, I mean, I guess it was interesting. It was very, um, I mean, it was eye-opening to put it mildly, but the, I think how we got through that and how we ended up where we were was because we stood in their shoes and we said, instead of saying, which I think would have been easy, which is like, oh my God, like the sky's falling and we're not gonna get the money. We, we immediately pivoted and we said, we understand what's happening and we're going to proactively go out and solve that problem for them. And, and, and that sounds a bit glib, but to say, we're going to understand how they want to perceive us. And if we can, if we can make that, um, if we can give them confidence that we as a management team can manage any scenario, then the underlying value of the technology, which had led us to build a really good investor syndicate before, should still be there. And that was what got us through. And that was what ended up with the investment round being what it was. So that was very interesting. And I, it's sort of, it's interesting for me. I look now at how buoyant the markets are, you know, and how many rounds are going through. It's really easy to forget that there was this moment where nothing was happening. There was sort of this paralysis. Um, yeah, there was. That was, there, was an, there was an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was just sort of a two, two month, three months sort of, uh, right. you know, sort of, uh, 
yeah, area where everything sort of seemed to quiet down. But but clearly you got your message across because yeah. the, the subsequent round was oversubscribed. Exactly. So yeah. um, so although people obviously were concerned about the uncertain, but you know about uncertainty. Yeah. You know may, maybe the way that you had pivoted uh, worked. Yeah. So um, you know you you joined uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so you know, what what. And you described earlier on about you know how you know you're a, you're a builder, right? you know, so you're you're looking to sort of you know, build a business. You know how how has the business changed in in the uh, the past couple of years? And you know now with this you know big tranche of uh, finance, you know what what sort of sort of milestones can we uh, anticipate? You know, glimpse achieving in, in the foreseeable future. Yeah, it's been, you know, the past couple of years have been exciting. So, you know, we grew a lot as a company. We became a clinical stage company. So we we, we substantially validated our technology in, uh, in NASH and, and uh, achieved our first in human and the data is about to be published. Um, so that was a, that was a, that was very significant for us, sort of a broad set of preclinical data. We demonstrated that we can detect disease very better than any other technology across the fibrotic spectrum. We can determine drug response and we validated that and, uh, and we've, we've achieved our first in humans. So all of that was great. Uh, we also advanced our second indication. So we have some great um, uh, early validation in oncology. Uh, so that was sort of the, that was the, the series uh, A window. Um, and then for series B, as we look forward now, the, the really big thing um, will be uh, we, we expect by the end of our Series B window to actually have an approved indication uh, in NASH. And so that's very exciting, right? Well, there'll actually be a commercial stage company by the, uh, by, by the end of that window. So that's the big uh, sort of next step. Um, we also expect to have very substantively advanced uh, oncology program in, you know, in clinical development as well. So you know, it, you know, everything continues to, to, to step forward. Um, but the, the really big step over the Series B window is the, um, is the NASH program um, getting to uh, hopefully an approved indication. All right. So um, this has been absolutely fascinating. So, so as, as a sort of final question, I mean, and you kind of alluded to it, but, you know, 2020 has been uh, sort of, you know, a, a sort of extraordinary year. Uh, the way that you know, sort of, uh, you know, people and companies have had to adapt to 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 the various changes. So I was just wondering, you know, what what are you now doing differently as as a CEO? Um, that you know, sort of like you know, behaviors that you may have introduced recently that may become sort of permanent and actually are going to be important as you sort of you know, manage uh, the business going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I, at the start of the pandemic, we, in fact, we were fortunate that very early on, uh, in like late December, early January, we started to see what was happening in China because we were manufacturing our clinical supplies 200 miles from Wuhan. So we saw what was happening. And we, first of all, we were dealing with that issue in China, but we also started to plan um, pandemic response for the, our US operations. Um, and it was largely because I had actually had responsibility for emergency preparedness at Bristol Myers Squibb. And so he'd kind of learned this, I had this muscle if you want. 
And it sort of, you know, it kicked into gear immediately. I, I just, it was hard for me to believe that we could see what was going on in China and, and that this wasn't going to be a bigger issue. So we, we sort of kicked in, you know, three things that I think, you know, everyone sort of has in their mind, but we, we, we've now kind of ingrained in the company in a way that um, are, you know, I think extremely prominent. The first is, you know, how carefully we take care of our team and how responsive we are to their situation. So we are, I think, likely to be in, in what's a, a, a permanent uh, optional remote working environment. Uh, so we have a, a lab-based organization, we have offices, we give people the option to work in, uh, go in, but it's an extremely volatile situation. We have people who have um, kids, you know, who have partial remote schooling or, or you know, remote schooling and all sorts of complexities. So we've said, People should work however it makes sense for them. We don't have any mandate on how people work. Do what accommodates you. And, and what's great is the whole company is rallied around this idea that people, you know, we have very, you know, the same as every company now, probably very good collaborative working structures remotely. And so we're making sure that we really adapt the organization's operating model to institutionalize that idea. So that's one thing. And we're very kind of focused on the organization and making sure that we really support our organization in that you know and that's of course beyond all of the regular just health and safety type things so that's one thing um the, the second is to make sure that we uh that, that we focus on you know that we prioritize ruthlessly and i, I think it's what, what we learned early on was that particularly when we stopped working for a short period when everything was shut down that was about two weeks um that you have to be really rigorous, you know, ruthless and, and to, to stop work that isn't important and to redirect people's priorities. But that has led us to kind of pull through much more rigorously how we prioritize and direct the organization. I think as a biotech, you already have that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, but it, it was something that we sort of engendered, um, you know, I think a, a lot more deeply in, in, in the organization. So, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot more around priorities. And then finally planning, just as we look forward, <laughs> we became a lot more um, flexible around our planning and, and, and a lot more contingency uh, planning uh, was introduced as well, just because you don't exactly know what's around the corner. Um, and so we've we just become a lot more mindful, I think about those three areas. Um, and it certainly served us well. We haven't missed a single milestone <laughs> since the pandemic started. Um, and you know, the, the, the work our, our team has certainly responded fabulously to uh, you know what's been an extremely difficult situation. Right. So look, Caroline, it's uh, yeah, this has uh, been a fantastic uh, conversation. So thanks very much for for for, for joining me today. Uh, yeah, the the sort of the the sort of the experiences that you shared, the insights um, that you um, also shared, uh, I'm sure are going to be of great interest to our audience. So if after listening to this broadcast, you'd like to tune into future conversations in healthcare, follow our LinkedIn page, because that's where we'll be posting uh, alerts to uh, future episode releases. So in closing, I'd like to, to, to thank uh, Carolyn again uh, for joining us and, and also thank all our listeners for, for tuning in. So until next time, uh, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.